This is not the media. This is hell. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible, horrible, awful, stupid, dumb business model. This is Hell, your daily, completely listener-supported source of agita. If you want to support This Is Hell, go to thisishell.com and click on support. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. How's your week going so far, Alex, your first couple of days? Uh, a lot better after I found out from a neighbor that uh, this whole COVID thing's actually not really that bad. Oh, really? And if you die in a car crash and you had COVID, they count it as a COVID-related fatality. Fatality, not a car crash thing. So really, way less people are dying than anyone says, and we should all get back to work. So did you tell them that that Manhattan ER doctor who committed suicide because she was so depressed over coronavirus that that's not counted as a coronavirus death, too? Yeah, I was just uh, nodding along and listening to a podcast in my ear. <laughs> is this the guy with the American neighbors. flag? No, this is a different, well, <laughs> different American flag. <laughs> Another guy, different flag. Weird, weird corner of Evanston. <laughs> Very weird corner. Uh, the newest part of my life under the virus, Alex, is uh, the stench of baby powder. Have you had this horrible event happen to you yet? Uh, a child? Yes. No. <laughs> it was a horrible event. Uh, no, but are you using baby powder now? During no. What are, I didn't use baby powder when my kid was a baby. What, I, what are you doing with baby powder? Are you injecting dude, it? Dude, Don't step I, I on wish. my question from hell. <laughs> They put latex gloves on sometimes. Oh, You okay. put baby powder in the gloves and they can slide on really easy. Except when you take them off, all of a sudden there's an explosion of baby powder in your face because you I'm... Do the Michael Jordan chalk thing. <laughs> exactly. I'm not well versed in the application of baby powder. So I often put too much baby powder in the glove. So there's this huge explosion of baby powder in my face when I take them off. And right now <clears throat> it's scattered all over the office floor. And I almost bit it when I went in there to print something out because it's kind of slippery. You know, uh, the government would, will categorize that as a COVID fatality, <laughs> so, according to my neighbors. So, damn, maybe this guy's onto something. Today, there is no alternative, is what authoritarians have been convincing us to believe for the last 40 years. There is no alternative. This is all we got. It ain't getting any better. To think that it will be or will get any better is ridiculous. It's like magical thinking. Utopian drivel that cannot possibly ever be achieved because all the experts and authorities within the ruling hierarchy say so. And they must know because they're in charge, right? Last week, we spoke with the editor of the new collection, Deciding for Ourselves, The Promise of Direct Democracy, Cindy Milstein, who is also a contributing writer to that collection. You can hear our interview with Cindy at thisishell.com. Cindy told us that, in fact, there are plenty of alternatives, and they are already in place today all over the world in a very sustainable fashion. We'll revisit one of those transformations for the first time in over five years when we have the return of political sociologist Dillard Dirick, whose essay, Only With You, This Broom Will Fly, Rojava, Magic, and Sweeping Away the State Inside of Us, is featured in Cindy's book. Dillar is an activist of the Kurdish women's movement in Europe and occasionally writes for international outlets on freedom struggles in Kurdistan. Her political work focuses on establishing links between the Kurdish women's liberation movement and women's struggles around the world. Dillar was on our show back in 2005 when she was on to discuss her writing at the time, The Other Kurds Fighting the Islamic State, which was posted at Al Jazeera. You can hear that interview now at thisishell.com. Follow Dillar on Twitter at dl. D, sorry, D-L-R-D-R-K, then the number one, D-L-R-D-R-K, and then the number one. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what household item are you injecting into your body to cure COVID-19? What household item are you injecting into your body to cure COVID-19? Also, uh, except ingesting into your body. So cats, do those count? Uh, if it's in your house. I guess it's a household item, right? I just use it as like a stool and kind of just use it as an item. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers so you too can subvert outdoor advertising with the words This Is Hell. 
As we are all living in hell right now, what better time to remind others that yes, this is hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell. What household item are you injecting or ingesting? What household item are you injecting or ingesting? At our Facebook page right now, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. Or you can email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of the day on Thursday when we announce this week's winner at the end of Thursday's show after Jeff Dorchin and his moment of truth. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question mail following our guest. Again, email us your answer to Chuck at ChuckAtThisIsHell.com, Alex at ChuckAtThisIsHell.com, post it on our Facebook page, tweet it to us, whatever. This is not the media. This is hell. After weeks of the media telling us, insisting that we are all in this together, despite the president cheering on protesters who want to break all the safety precautions necessary to stop the spread of coronavirus, after over a month of feel-good stories about American resilience and how we honor those who sacrifice on the front lines of the pandemic, the first responders who we honor with song and banging on pots and pans, we are no longer, we are being, now we are being told by the same news media that we are suffering from quarantine fatigue. Apparently, all we can tolerate is about a month indoors. After that, even if it means the possibility of death or giving loved ones who we live with death, we've had enough. We would rather take the chance of dying than stay indoors with our freaking families, which is weird because we've also been told by the media that family is the most important thing to American society. So if family is so great, why can't we wait to get out of the house and risk our lives to get away from our freaking families? Yes, it's boring staying alive with the people who we allegedly love, supposedly love. Spending time with them is incredibly tedious, very monotonous, and seemingly never-ending, despite us being indoors with them for only around a month. Who knew it would only take one month for all of us to figure out how much we really do not like each other, how all of this love was a complete fraud, a total fake, a performative act for the world to see. God, as our, our family's exceedingly dull. God. The relentless monotony, tedium, and boredom is enough to drive one to drastic measures. Measures like going outside and potentially losing your life to a plague just for a few hours away from them. Ugh, the privilege of actually having a home, four walls and a roof and a floor with running water and indoor plumbing, that privilege is quickly discarded because we have grown tired of that luxury as others struggle to survive on the streets, who cannot shelter in place, who cannot wash their hands several times a day are the very last to get personal protective equipment and the last in line for health care. Yeah, we're done with that. But we're being told we're, we've gone from being all in this together to quarantine fatigue, simply tired of being indoors. We're also done with staying six feet away from each other. And these masks and washing our hands and changing our clothes before we go outdoors and when you come back in like you are all in some airlock, changing in and out of your spacesuit to venture onto some alien world. We are so over that. Protests at state capitals continue to grow unbelievably as more and more people show up in camouflage so they can be clearly seen in contrast to the often white capitol buildings where they make their stand. You can be seen. You do understand that wearing that camouflage does not make it so you cannot be seen. If you wanted to not be seen, then you should have worn all white. They are proud Americans, very proud to be Americans, carrying Confederate flags with some even brandishing swastikas. They're preparing for the coming apocalypse for years, buying anything that advertises in the NRA magazine America's First Freedom, from MREs to food dehydrators to power generators to gold coins. Preppers have done what they were told, getting ready for the end of the world, and now here it is, and instead of being in those bunkers, hunkering down, they can't wait to get away from all their stuff, especially their loving families, to tell the government they want to go back outside and play. Others protest not at the Capitol, not by waving flags, not by marching with 
AR-15s, but by going to packed beaches, which opened up in many places around the U.S. this weekend, despite the predicted death toll of 60,000 by August 4th in the U.S., coming over three months early. Yes, miraculously, as if it was as easy as flipping a switch, we have gone from all being in this together to being tired of this togetherness and went right back to not caring about the impact our actions may have on the lives of our neighbors, those in our community, of our fellow residents and citizens. Being all in this together was fun while it lasted. Now we can move on to the next stage of grieving. Quarantine fatigue. So first we didn't believe the plague had descended upon us. Then we figured, sure, that can happen in China. But this is the U.S. of freaking A, and it can happen here. So we made a deal, and that deal was we stay inside for one month at the very most, washing our hands, wearing masks, and staying six feet away from one another. But that's it, as if we were making some kind of deal, some kind of bargain with the virus. At this point in that grieving process, we would have moved on to guilt. And have we found those we believe are guilty for doing this to us? No, we haven't really moved on to guilt as much as we've found guilt in others. Others like the Chinese, the slow response by the Trump administration, protesters against state governments that they believe have gone too far. No, it's not the guilt stage of grief as much as it's the who's guilty stage of grief, which sparks the next step, anger, which we have seen people venting online and off against state governments while praising the federal governments having discarded their values of states' rights and their newfound support for the big bad federal government. And if the process acts like the playbook says, we will wrap up our grief with depression, which should be coming next any moment now, then acceptance, and eventually hope, supposedly. Without ever acknowledging our own guilt, our own complicity, our own contributions to climate change, which are part and parcel of the virus. We will never get to the acceptance of what we have done and any hope for our survival without ever addressing the guilt we should have of embracing and allowing capitalism to do what it has done. We'll never get to that hope and we may not survive. Yeah, I'm bored with quarantine too. But you know what is really, really boring? really dull, incredibly monotonous and tedious, even more so than having to stay inside your stupid home with your dumb family. Being dead. This is hell. Coming up, there is no alternative, but there is, and there are plenty, and we'll discuss one of them shortly. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what household item are you injecting or ingesting to fight the coronavirus? What household item are you injecting or ingesting to fight off the coronavirus? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Authoritarians want you to believe that there is no alternative. That any thought of anything other than the abusive system of violence and war that we currently suffer under is nothing but magical thinking, utopian fantasies, and dreams that should be ignored and dismissed. Returning to this is hell to remind us there is an alternative that we have discussed but far too long ago on the show. Political sociologist Dilar Dirick returns to This Is Hell. Dilar is an activist of the Kurdish women's movement in Europe and a contributor to the book we featured on last week's show, Deciding for Ourselves, The Promise of Direct Democracy, which we discussed with the editor of the collection as well as one of its contributing writers, Cindy Milstein. Dilar's essay in Cindy's collection is entitled only with you this broom will fly, Rojava magic, and sweeping away the state inside of us. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Dilar. Hi, thank you. I'm so happy to be back. It's great to have you on the show again. Dilar was on our show back in 2015 when we talked with her about her writing at the time, The Other Kurds Fighting the Islamic State, which was posted at Al Jazeera. You can listen to that interview at thisishell.com, and you can follow Dilar on Twitter at DLR. DRK1. You write that a year into the war in Syria on July 19th, 2012, the people in the majority Kurdish north of the country took over governmental facilities, hoisted their yellow, green, and red flags, and chanting about uh, loud revolutionary music, declared revolution in Rojava. Not many years have passed, but enough things have happened since then to fill entire libraries. Why then? What, hap what happened at that moment? to allow for that to occur? 
Um, there was a combination of a lot of different factors. Of course, we cannot separate uh, what happened in Rojava at the time um, from the larger situation at that time in the region. Um, so, of course, one must place it within several different histories, right? On one hand, there is the uh, decades-old history of the Kurdish freedom movement and its uh, legacy also in, in Rojava, specifically. Um, but also, of course, uh, generally uh, democratic um, uh, quests in the region, more generally, uh, what was called at the time and still called uh, the Arab Spring uh, in 2011, uh, all the across different countries in the region, people started to um, protest on a larger scale against authoritarianism and, um, and violence from the states uh, that they uh, are the citizens of. So, um, so Rojava must be placed, of course, within the context of the war in Syria, which started in 2011, but it's also uh, not it cannot only be reduced to a moment that started in 2011 because uh, the Kurdish freedom movement had been operating there uh, in Rojava specifically, secretly for much longer than that. So um, that's why when um, things started to develop uh, in Syria uh, a year into the war, uh, people took the necessary steps at the time to, to protect uh, their own regions uh, from falling into uh yeah, to enter this violence, this the spiral of violence that was taking place at the time. And so, um, of course, and I would argue, and I've, I tried to argue this in the chapter as well, there is also an autonomous women's history, actually, that needs to be considered. So um, there's a combination of different histories that uh, led to what then uh, was declared as the Rojava Revolution. So you also point out that a monstrous fascist entity, the so-called Islamic State or ISIS, rose up, conquered vast territories and fell within years. Yet ISIS only accounts for a small percent of the unimaginable violence, brutality and trauma inflicted on millions of people by the Syrian forces and other groups involved in the ongoing war, not least of which involves the global arms trade that sponsors and perpetuates conflicts around the world. Here in the States, the Syrian war was essentially within our media for a very long time the war with ISIS. And President Trump's announcement of the fall of ISIS was sold to us as a victory, a victory by the United States in the Syrian war. What is missed in understanding the Syrian war when it is only seen as a war with ISIS and Trump claims the fall of ISIS is a U.S. victory in the Syrian war? Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be unpacked here. I mean, there is a uh... The U.S. has played a very negative role uh, throughout. I mean, since 2011, um, the United States under the Obama administration has also actively contributed um, also through cooperation with countries like Turkey, Qatar and Saudi Arabia to the rise of jihadism and jihadist groups in the region through recruitment and arming. And this is not a secret. It's something I actually think I mentioned this even in 2015 on your show, <laughs> actually, back then as well, that uh, even um, Joe Biden actually at the time admitted this, that uh, he said something along the lines of our partners in the region, our allies in the region, contributed to the rise of extremism, including ISIS, in the region. So we cannot separate, of course, the rise of ISIS from, from the violence that was generally taking place uh, in the region. So people speak, um, of course, uh, of the violence of the Syrian regime, but also, I mean, very quite early on, the the situation was very violent and there were extremist groups uh, involved and uh, still today al-Nusra, al-Qaeda linked uh, groups and also ICE. So it's, it's, um, it's of course a whitewashing of the role of the United States to reduce the whole situation in Syria to a US-led victory against ISIS and it also uh, considering, you know, this this darker story that people prefer to cover up, uh, but also at the same time, uh, ISIS existed um, and has been committing massacres in the region uh, for much longer than um, when the U.S. decided to interfere, which was in 2014. And I remember when I was on your show, this was around um, the early months of 2015, um, this was when the siege of Kobani was broken. And Kobani was the first city that 
I mean, people often say it's the first city that defeated ISIS. But how did that happen? So the whole involvement of the United States and the US-led coalition uh, started in 2014, in, in October, September, October 2014, because of the resistance of Kobani as well. So the people in Kobani and in Rojava more generally had been resisting these forces, not just ISIS, but also al-Nusra and other al-Qaeda-linked forces that had been open, openly operating in that region. Also, uh, one must say this very explicitly because of the role that Turkey played in the context of the war in the north. Um, so people had been exposed to these jihadist groups very early on, and they had been of course, uh, establishing their self-defense forces um, as early as 2011 and then openly since 2012. Uh, we all know the People's Protection Units and the Women's Protection Units, the YPG and the YPJ. Um, so actually, months before, uh, and I've interviewed many people uh, who gave testimony on these uh, on these events, quite early on, uh, there were Self, not just the YPG and YPJ, but also the people on the ground were uh, receiving armed training openly. There was a mother's battalion that was formed in June of elderly women who said, we will be prepared when ISIS attacks our region because we have seen what ISIS has done to women in other parts of Syria and Iraq. Uh, of course, people uh, remember very uh, vividly what happened to Yazidi women in, Shinga, in Shingal or Sinjar um, in August 2014, where thousands of women were abducted and sold into sex slavery. Thousands of men were murdered on the spot. I mean, at that time, when these massacres, which I mean, the Yazidi uh, massacre was then, uh, of course, acknowledged as a, as a genocide. When all of these things happened, nobody in the world was doing anything. People were watching. And it was people on the ground, uh, led by the Kurdish Freedom Movement, who were resisting. So people said, we do not want a repetition of uh, such massacres. So in Kobani, people were prepared. They were taking their precautions, and they did not have anybody to rely on. So this was long before the U.S. involvement. And uh, so... This is I'm, I'm stressing these uh, detailed events just to make sure that people understand that uh, the U.S. got involved much later. And it was really people on the ground uh, who had no backing, no funding, no arms. They had a few Kalashnikovs and then the weapons that they were able to take from ISIS and other groups uh, with which they were fighting. And they had organized themselves also with a political ideology. So it should also not be understood as just a random, um, spontaneous uh, resistance. It's, it's, it's the product of decades of political organizing by the Kurdish freedom movement along revolutionary ideas that gave people the necessary political consciousness to be prepared to fight. So um, it's, it's not, there's nothing spontaneous about it in that sense, but it was a popular uh, mobilization. So, um, and then, of course... Uh, people were watching the siege of, of Kobani. People watched, and I interviewed women commanders of, of Kobani. I interviewed two women, Maryam Kobani, for example. She was uh, there during the whole siege. She, she mentioned how they had been fighting for 30 days or so. Only then, as the international media outlets were across the border in Suruç, on the Turkish side of the border, uh, nobody could deny that there was an there was an incredible resistance going on in Kobani. So um, then this is when the Obama administration decided to, to get involved. And this was really uncomfortable, uh, not just for the resisting people on the ground, uh, because, um, I mean, for, for other reasons. But, I mean, in that moment, everybody was appreciating, of course, uh, these airstrikes because people were about to die. People, there was going to be yet another massacre of ISIS in, in front of the eyes of the whole world. But then, uh, of course, for the U.S., this meant um, basically engaging in a tactical alliance with the enemies of Turkey. And Turkey is, of course, uh, an important NATO ally of the U.S. So this was all very complicated. And um, so then eventually um, the, this, this cooperation uh, was taken further. And with the foundation of the Syrian Democratic Forces, there was more direct and explicit uh, cooperation. And throughout this whole time, the, the Turkish state was expressing their discontent, saying, 
criticizing the U.S. for supporting terrorists because for the Turkish state, it was always clear that uh, they were happier with ISIS at their border than with a Kurdish-led autonomous project. So um, the Turkish discourse has been to say, well, the PYD, YPG, ISIS, they're all the same. They're all terrorist elements and we need to eliminate this threat to our national security. And the U.S., on the other hand, was saying, no, the SDF are different from the PKK. So this also, of course, led to, on an ideological level, uh, an attempt by the U.S. to try discursively or directly really to dissociate the, the revolution in Rojava from its revolutionary ro- ro- roots by saying, well, this was uh, this is our victory. And then you've seen when people were announcing the territorial uh, end of ISIS uh, last year, um, all of the states that were members of the coalition, they, they thanked themselves, they thanked the NATO, they thanked each other. But actually, we know that it was the people of a revolutionary movement who were among the first ones to die. There were thousands of people, 11,000 people. Kurds and Arabs uh, mainly, uh, they fought together shoulder to shoulder and they had revolutionary slogans, they had anti-fascist slogans. And uh, so the whole thing, of course, in order to deny uh, the revolutionary character of something like this, one must change the discourse, one must uh, you know, use all of that uh, media arsenal that they have available to undermine that this was actually a socialist project that led the fight against ISIS. So uh, this is why we always, in the Kurdish women's movement as well, it's important to protect these legacies, to claim them. And for women, it was important because when the YPJ uh, declared victory in, in Raqqa, they did so in front of a big picture of Abdullah Öcalan. And they always explained that this was possible, that women rose up against uh, Daesh, against ISIS in places like Kobani and elsewhere uh, because of this revolutionary commitment, because of a belief that uh, women can be free. And they actually gifted the struggle against ISIS that they led and in which they also liberated thousands of women, by the way, who had been enslaved by ISIS. Um, They said this is our gift to women around the world, to struggling women around the world. So this was actually women's history being written. But if you look at the accounts of the corporate media, of the U.S. official statements, it will look like yet another NATO victory, which is why I think it's very important for for progressive people, for leftists around the world to understand exactly what happened. Why is, because I think this reveals a lot about Turkey, why is Turkey happier with ISIS being on their border than movements like the Rojava revolution? I mean, um, there are a lot of uh, historic, ideological, geopolitical, economic reasons for that. Uh, But um, in essence, I mean, if you look at the nature of the current Turkish government, uh, it's it's not only a a very patriarchal, conservative and frankly Islamist um, government, which has, with the help of the US and other groups uh, and the EU as well, been able to portray itself as a moderate uh, form of Islam, a moderate government, a good progressive neoliberal partner in the region. Of course, it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's the second largest NATO army. Um, So Turkey is a very um, conservative, authoritarian uh, country that gets away with all kinds of human rights abuses and war crimes at the moment. Uh, Also, of course, uh, I wrote this chapter on on Rojava in in Cindy's, uh, in in the book, before the last, uh, latest invasion of the Turkish army of Rojava. We might talk about this later. But um, basically, um, Turkey gets away with war crimes and human rights abuses because people fail to understand uh, just exactly what this government is up to. This has to do, of course, with things like the arms trade. Um, Many European governments, the US as well, uh, trade in arms with Turkey. They, Turkey is one of the most important arms uh, importers uh, uh, for for Western countries. Uh, also, they're now dealing with, with Russia as well. So um, that's that. For the, these economies to run, the war needs to continue because the arms trade is one of the biggest uh, economies uh, for 
for these systems, for these governments. And then at the same time, of course, uh, people systematically downplayed the, the, the Turkish state's involvement in supporting jihadist groups uh, in, in Syria uh, and also within, within Turkey. Uh, we've seen increasingly a crackdown on on people who were opposing the government and its policies, not just in Syria and Iraq, but also domestic policies. Uh, now the most progressive people, thinkers, writers, activists, uh, politicians are in jail. Uh, there's thousands of political prisoners in jail in Turkey at the moment who have been um, excluded from the coronavirus amnesty. So now we have lots of people uh, were able to, to, to leave prison. And of course, that's, that's a positive thing, but at the expense of political prisoners. Political prisoners can be sacrificed, apparently, in, in Turkey. So, so all of this um, is, is important to consider the nature of the Turkish state. Actually, ideologically, of course, it will feel closer to, to extremist groups that share at least some level of its ideology and also wider project. I mean, Erdogan's Turkey is specifically targeting uh, ethnic and religious minorities uh, as well. So it's, it's, it's that aspect as well that's important. Of course, the, the situation that unfolded in Rojava, the, the political, social, uh, cultural project, at least, you know, regardless of the level in which it could be implemented, it is a progressive one. It is one that was um, established also by women. It was one that said, actually, a, a third way is possible in Syria. We do not have to choose between the Syrian regime and an opposition that, you know, may have started in a very genuine, democratic and progressive way, but it was very soon uh, co-opted and um, supported by uh, by reactionary forces from outside. So um, that's, uh, so as some people who I've interviewed were saying, it's Rojava in that moment was, was an alternative in a region that um, had historically had to choose, uh, been made to choose, forced to choose between uh, different kinds of dictatorships or different kinds of reaction, whether it's uh, secular militaris, uh, militarist regimes or uh, Islamist regimes, the Muslim Brotherhood, and all of these different groups, right? But this discourse has been actively also uh, imposed on this region by the US and others through interventionism and, and foreign wars and all, all kinds of stuff. So in this sense, um, Something like Rojava, not just Rojava, of course, there's other progressive uh, freedom-loving people and movements in the region. These voices are actively being silenced. And by making Erdogan's Turkey look like a good option for Middle Eastern people, they're actually condemning women, ethnic and religious minorities, uh, differently thinking people, um, the young people. They condemn them to something that actually cannot be, should not be an alternative. Erdogan is not a moderate uh, government, uh, but that's also something that people in the region, more generally in the Middle East and North Africa, uh, need to understand. So uh, in this sense, um, it was very clear very early on, as I mentioned, we were protesting as early as 2012 and 13 about um, these jihadist groups in the region and how they were uh, either directly or indirectly somehow linked uh, to the Turkish state. And this is still something that people are not uh, putting enough attention to. You were just saying that they are actively being silenced. To you, what explains that silencing by the media, especially here in the United States? What explains, in your opinion, U.S. media denialism of Turkey's support for ISIS? What explains this active, uh, actively being silenced by the media when it comes to the actions and the successes of the Rojava revolution? Yeah, I mean, there's there's two things. On one hand, of course, uh, the alliance between uh, Turkey and the U.S. Um, is very strategic uh, in the sense that not just because of the arms trade, but also economically, uh, politically, Turkey is an important ally for the U.S. in the region. So this is one reason why Turkey gets away with all of these. Uh, I mean, Turkey openly uh, recruited, armed and trained, funded all of these groups that it now calls Syrian National Army, which are occupying large parts of the um, in the border region in Rojava and um, in the north of Syria uh, by the Turkish border. So these people 
if you look at what happened in Afrin in 2018 when the Turkish army invaded and has been occupying Afrin ever since, these people are jihadists. They have absolutely no difference between themselves and the methods employed by ISIS. The first thing that they did was to torture the bodies of dead Kurdish women fighters, uh, insulting them in very misogynistic ways. Uh, they they, they, they went after Kurdish uh, politician, women politicians. They destroyed everything that the women's movement had been building up ever since. So not just in Afrin, I'm also talking about the later operation that started in October 2019. And so uh, Hevrin Khalaf, a Kurdish uh, politician who was working for uh, the, the peace and uh, friendship between peoples, she was targeted and executed. She was uh, assassinated by these forces. And um, so, so what does all of this tell us? These people, uh, not just the way they look, also their slogans, uh, their methods. The people say, and the women I've interviewed also ever since, are saying there's absolutely no difference between them and Daesh. And these are forces that are directly armed, trained, and funded by Turkey, which is a uh, EU member candidate, but at the same time also the second largest NATO army. So these are basically NATO's allies. NATO's allies are jihadists who use the same methods as Al-Qaeda and, uh, and Daesh, as ISIS. So um, this is outrageous. But the fact that these people are filming their own war crimes, filming their human rights abuses, they're also abducting uh, women, by the way. They're also targeting the religious sites of Alevis and Yazidis uh, in, in Afrin and other places. Um, they're looting people's homes. They have documented these themselves. Okay, so it's not a, a, a little claim made by some random Kurdish people. No, these jihadists are... Uh, filming their own war crimes, and yet people are looking away. So there are some human rights abuses, uh, sorry, human rights reports, also uh, a UN report uh, that was issued uh, mentioning these things, but actually nobody, people are saying uh, we need to uh, motivate Turkey to stop uh, these abuses in its in the areas that it occupies, but actually nobody fundamentally challenges the occupation itself. And the, the slogan of the women's movement, by the way, for International Day Against Violence Against Women was occupation is violence. So people, because of this anti-terrorism paradigm, because of this whole security discourse, people think it is legitimate for Turkey um, to actually invade these regions if that serves its, uh, its national security interests. And why? This is then the second point, is because, uh, of course, Rojava, um, is, is understood as being directly linked to the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK. And so, of course, pictures like uh, those of Abdullah Öcalan, um, the, the ideology, the political practice and so on, um, these are used then as a pretext for the Turkish state to say, well, basically, it's the PKK operating there. But again, this comes down to how you want to frame and understand the whole situation. I mean, people... Uh, would not have been able to resist in Kobani and elsewhere. And this is what people say very openly, including the commanders of Kobani. It's like, this is the legacy of the Kurdish freedom movement. This is also the legacy of the Kurdistan Workers' Party that has been operating here since uh, 1979, which is when Abdullah Jalan crossed into Syria. The political organizing and education that has been happening there meant that for the first time, women were leaving their homes for political work, right? So you cannot deny this, this legacy. But at the same time, uh, because of the ter uh, PKK's terror labeling, it's b basically equating the PKK, the, the movement that is behind uh, many of these progressive things that people like about the Kurdish movement, in including the autonomous women's movement. Um, they're equating them, the PKK, and th by that uh, logic also the whole project of Rojava, with being just the same as, as ISIS. And this has been Turkey's discourse the whole time. So Turkey employs itself these forces that are committing these war crimes, that are assassinating female politicians, that are torturing the bodies of women. Um, that's not terrorists, but the, the revolutionary movement in Rojava is, is a terrorist one. So this comes down generally to this whole war on terror thing as well, which is why Turkey gets away with all of these things, because it can say this is about my national security, which is why actually it doesn't really make much sense to appeal to states, because they all buy into this, right? People um, 
societies, really, progressive thinking people, groups, um, I'm not talking just about rights groups, but really genuine uh, political organizers need to understand exactly what is going on there. And they need to understand uh, the ways in which the Turkish state is contributing to violence in the region. And this maybe it's not so relevant for you guys in the US, but especially here in Europe, I mean, the European Union has given Turkey millions of euros for the so-called refugee crisis that actually Turkey and all of these states through their arms trades, through their policies have helped create, right? So uh, people were displaced, 300,000 people were displaced from Afrin, hundreds of thousands of people were displaced in uh, the latest Turkish operation, so-called Operation Peace Spring in October 2019. Turkey is actively creating refugees and internally displaced people, yet Turkey is receiving money from the EU although it is using these war criminals to, uh, to to attack these regions and turn more people into. So it's it's all a circle, you know, it's a circle of war and violence. And the European Union, the United States and other countries are all implied in it, which is why we say you cannot separate what is happening in Rojava from wider things that are happening in the region, including the refugee crisis, including the arms trade, including the rise of authoritarianism, racism, and people like Trump, Erdogan, uh, Bolsonaro and all the others, they mutually reinforce each other. It's, it's, they, they have created a system in which people find it difficult to even imagine alternatives, which is why there is this massive media silence on not just the meaning of Rojava, not just what has been built up there, but also uh, just the ways in which it has been attacked and is now being sacrificed for the sake of these economic and political interests of these uh, forces. And you write, if uh, a decade ago, if you had told the impoverished and colonized Kurdish people in northern Syria that one day internationalists from around the world would be buried in these lands after helping to defend the people's resistance against fascism, who would have believed it? Some argue that they simply do not have the power to have a revolution, some sort of political or social transformation. Yet with Rojava, this is a revolution by those who are impoverished, colonized, so is the problem not the lack of power, but the abundance of it? That is, is power or even the illusion of power an obstacle to revolution? Do we not rise up because we believe here in the States that our vote does have power? Do we have to lack power to get power? Well, that's a big philosophical question. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that I've been talking about war and destruction too much. So let's say a few positive things, perhaps. I mean... Look, it all comes down to political uh, organizing, right? Like power. How? What do you mean? What do you mean by power? In the last uh, couple of years, here in the UK or or in the US and other places, people have been focusing so much on on elections, on electoral campaigns, on getting people on board to overthrow or to you know at least not re-elect uh, people like Trump, like Boris Johnson and others. So, uh, of course, uh, this kind of politics, which we can call, you know, either electoral or just, you know, mainstream politics, state-centric politics, whatever, it is, of course, it is one side of the struggle. Likewise, in Turkey, people are doing a lot of work on that level to to change the government to to force it to accept uh, some of the demands that other people make but that's not enough i mean in order to really be meaningfully politically powerful it doesn't mean we have to adopt uh, the same methods of power uh, as those that are in power and that use that power to to oppress people right so how can we actually build power through alliance through, um, on one hand, we need uh, internal political education mechanisms for our own internal democracy. I mean, in the Kurdish freedom movement, it's uh, the example I can give is, for example, the women's movement, also as a struggle against power in the movement itself, uh, a struggle for anti-authoritarianism in the movement itself through women's autonomy. Uh, and likewise, uh, across the board, I mean, the uh, Kurdish movement and many other movements are now reaching out to each other. We now say, in line with many other feminists in the world, is that actually today the biggest social movement is the women's movement. We've seen it in the 8th March celebrations in places like Mexico, Argentina, many uh, different parts of the world, right? How can these struggles actually reach out to each other rather than um, being forced to 
ally with states. I mean, look, the, the, the tragedy that happened in October 2019 happened also because of the U.S., uh, uh, you know, the Trump's announcement of withdrawing the uh, U.S. troops from the region, which then basically was a green light for Turkey to, to attack, right? So why did this happen? Why are uh, Palestinians, for example, often put in a position in which they have to uh, address their demands to other states that are also oppressive. Why are oppressed people, colonized people, always put in a position in which they have to accept whoever gives them help? It's not going to lead us anywhere, right? But that's unfortunately the reality right now. But that's also because the struggles, the progressive struggles, the democratic struggles in the different countries are often too occupied uh, with whatever is happening within the borders of their nation state. But actually, we need to build power, I think, in a transnational way, in ways in which uh, we can find new vocabularies where we can learn from each other and to understand, really, that defending Rojava uh, from Turkish state fascism, uh, from other forms of attacks, but right now, really, it's the Turkish state that is the biggest danger. Uh, an attack on Rojava, uh, a suffocation of Rojava, will also mean a suffocation of other uh, liberation movements and struggles in other parts of the world. Look, the criminalization of the Kurdish movement is also um, the criminalization of other social movements in, in Europe. The Kurdish movement is one of the biggest and most organized Kur uh, social movements in Europe. And the ways in which it is targeted and harassed and criminalized is actually unbelievable. If people look into it more closely, they will understand the implications of it. What the attacks on Rojava mean is really is, an, is, a, is a campaign against all liberation movements. I think this is what we need to understand, which is why also for us, it's important to defend and protect other liberation struggles across the board. And that's why I think um, seizing power in that sense means, uh, means, means, means organizing from the grassroots, means uh, creating political consciousness among people, uh, creating ways in which we can organize ourselves, methods of organizing that are not um, simply about, um, yeah, just how do we elect a government that we um, like, but actually, how do we change the system? And I think this is very important when we look at uh, the climate change and other issues as well, right? It's simply we're past the stage where we can say, um, this is, you know, we, we, if we just change the government, it will be fine. We literally need a bigger, more radical system change. And more and more people are understanding that. And my, my hope and our hope as a Kurdish movement in general is it's, it, will, it must be led by the youth and the women. Dilara, first of all, I could talk to you all day long and every show <laughs> for a few weeks because I really enjoy listening to you. Your answers are exceptional. Uh, so to what extent is revolution being a crime? To what extent is revolution criminal, being criminalized? How much is that an obstacle to revolution? And more importantly, I guess, what does it say to you about the nation state? when transformation from it is against the law, breaks the law, transformation, the discussion of transformation, even failed transformation is a crime. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the idea of the nation state is actually totally opposed to, to social transformation because the nation state is a project of uh, social engineering in that sense. It is, um, you know, as we see in the Middle East, where the nation state is less than 100 years old in a way, um, it's about one nation, one flag, one um, sometimes one religion, uh, one way of running things, right? So the nation state is holding a monopoly over all different spheres of our lives, not just the economy, uh, but also history, history writing, meaning, meaning giving, uh, the media, uh, society, culture. So uh, we are turned into subjects of, of state rather than uh, understanding each other, ourselves and each other in a more horizontal fashion as members of society. So for us in the Kurdish freedom movement, words like community and society are so important. How can we become societies again? How can we uh, transcend this uh, individualistic um um, basically identity that is so tied to the state. We're all citizens of states. Our loyalty is to the state. We, The whole way in which we look at the world is so centered around what citizen are you? So how can we then build communities, build societies? So in this sense, um, I guess criminalization, as we see also 
uh, more and more in different parts of the world, uh, in Europe and elsewhere, uh, when social movements or political groups, political ideas are criminalized and equated with <laughs> things like terrorism, when when radical women's organizing or radical environmentalist organizing is equated with um, with violence, neo-Nazi terrorism or or Islamist uh, uh, violence, similarly, I mean, reactionary fascist uh, groups, let's say, then we must ask ourselves, what does this mean? What is the implication of this? Because the nation state basically takes over the right to say, this is good and this is bad. I decide what is moral. I decide what is normal and what isn't. So by pushing people who are slightly challenging the state to the realm of criminalization, by, by criminalizing even the few uh, great alternatives that we have, that we cling on to, the state is trying to tell us, no, if you do this, you are abnormal. I will isolate you from society. I will put you in prison or I will turn you into a paranoid person. I will surveil you. So all of these aspects are important to understand criminalization. Why do the same nation states openly support or fund uh, actual terrorists, I mean, if we try to reclaim the word terrorism, <laughs> anti-terrorism from the state and just make a very basic moral assessment of what is terror, right? What does terror actually mean? Why does the state get to decide what is terrorist and what isn't? Of course, uh, there's some basic sense in which we can understand when something actually causes terror and violence and harm to people. But in other cases, it's just unjustified why certain things should be criminalized and not others. Why is the state able to get away with everything and nobody will hold the state ever accountable for anything it does or alliances like NATO and so on. So the, the implications of criminalization really say a lot about what do we mean by life? What do we mean by polit politics? What does it mean in times of coronavirus or, or other things, right? So it's basically a suffocation of people's ability to decide for themselves uh, as, as Cindy's title suggests. So in this sense, I think um, social transformation then must be understood in a different way. And if you look at it from a feminist perspective, it's also about the transformation of social relations. It's about transforming uh, our relations, our friendships, our families, uh, our uh, communities in ways that actually render us politically literate, render us uh, more able to uh, create the tools and methods for a self-determined and autonomous life. It doesn't mean we can overthrow entire governments with it, but it is necessary uh, to create communities in order for us to have a more collective shared understanding of what is wrong in this world, because that's also something that's really missing. Most people today uh, may not even be aware of all of the damage and harm that is being done to them. I think now with the whole situation of the virus, people are uh, opening their eyes to some of it, but actually considering the fact that every day so many people are dying on the Mediterranean Sea, uh, which again, uh, we need to credit the European Union for, for this uh, uh, horrible, for these horrible crimes. You know, people are dying on a daily basis on the way to uh, a safer place because they are running away from weapons that were produced uh, by the European governments. For example, I'm just giving that as an example to say how normalized is it for people around the world that all of this war and violence is happening and we, uh, we then get forced into thinking that, oh, actually this is just the world. People are just inherently bad. The world is just inherently bad. What can I do about it? I just watch my TV shows, but no, there's systems, there are structures that create and perpetuate these violences. And we can educate ourselves on them. We can understand them. But in order to really properly understand them, we must shift our focus away from just focusing on our government, our nation state, our nation, our culture, whatever, but actually look, look in a more global way to understand the links between systems of violence and oppression, but also the links between the struggles that we're leading. And how can we strengthen each other's hands? I think that must be at the heart of a new internationalism as well for the 21st century. You write that the statist notions of socialism stand in contrast to movements and perspectives that rely on the consciousness as well as action of everyday people and their potential to become subjects of transformative social processes without orders from above. Has socialism, whatever shortcomings socialism has had, has it not worked, not because socialism doesn't work, but because 
the state doesn't work? Is the biggest obstacle to socialism the state? Um, one would argue, I mean, yeah, I would say uh, partly yes, uh, because the state as a as a system, as a project, um, as an institution, especially the nations, especially the authoritarian states that we have today, I mean, states don't have to look the way they do, um, but but this is how they, uh, this is what they turn into, because the structure uh, that they, the structures that they have, the the monopoly that they have on different aspects of life, basically make the room for them to crack down on on the liberties and and rights that they are supposed to be uh, protecting in theory. So uh, socialism, um, socialism is a is a is a is an ideal. It's not something that belongs to just one party, one individual, one um, one legacy. Uh, many different parts of the world, especially in the global south, different movements, women, young people, people have died for this ideal. People have given all their lives for these ideals uh, because it's a promise of justice. It's a promise of um, of liberation. So, of course, there's different uh, discussions within. But if you just take it very broadly, if we divorce it from, let's say, the Soviet legacy or uh, or Maoist legacies and so on, just socialism as an ideal, and with that also anarchism and uh, and other forms of uh, freedom focused, freedom loving, justice focused uh, ideas and ideologies. Um, of course, the state then becomes an obstacle because if your concern is then to seize power, to have a mechanism to control people, to control the economy, rather than uh, turning people into agents of, of their own lives, if your concern is more about social control, about disciplining people, and that's that was basically one of the things about state socialism is that that, that whole bureaucratic. Uh, authoritarian apparatus that then develops, of course, at some point it will break with the promise of liberation because then it will become oppressive itself, which is why if we look at socialism from through feminist perspectives, through libertarian perspectives, through ecological perspectives, uh, and also through perspectives from non-Eurocentric or Western-centric perspectives, I think we can enrich our understanding of what it means. If we look at it from uh, in a very broad sense as a promise for liberation, socialism is something that uh, I think we can all uh, unite behind. And actually many people who have been taught to think of it as a very dirty term, and I know this is the case in the US and in other places, um, people don't understand what it is because this is again part of the discourse that people equated immediately with the the bad uh, bad examples in history, with bad negative legacies, with horrible legacies. Actually, I don't want to just say bad; it's actually quite terrifying. Um, but that's not uh, that's not what socialism is. Socialism is what we make it. Uh, socialism is something that we can build through building communities, through solidarity, through mutual aid, through um, uh, basically finding alternatives to what is. It. In that sense, uh, the the claim socialism or barbarism, I think, is very much relevant to our times today. And this is how, again, to come back to Rojava, uh, this was basically the the idea that motivated the, the fighters and the people on the ground when they were resisting against ISIS, not just the fighters, there was, was a huge mobilization on a popular level. It was literally, it was socialism or barbarism or fascism in the sense, right? Um, so in a world in which especially women experience all forms of violence on a daily basis, of course, women then will become among the strongest if they politically organize, if they unite, if they find good methods to do that, if they don't turn into elite movements, but actually have roots in in the culture, in the uh, in the popular masses, if they find uh, approaches that are not authoritarian, that do not look down at people. And this is very much possible, especially through uh, people listening to feminists, actually. Um, I think then we will find uh, ways in which we can reclaim uh, words like socialism, like anarchism, and the most beautiful aspects about them, which are basically about liberation. We have been speaking with political sociologist Dilar Derrick. She is an activist of the Kurdish women's movement in Europe. She's also a contributor to the book we featured on last week's show, Cindy Milstein's Deciding for Ourselves, The Promise of Direct Democracy. Dilar's essay in that book is entitled 
Only with you this broom will fly. Rojava, magic, and sweeping away the state inside of us. Follow Dilar on Twitter at D-L-R-D-R-K, and then follow by the number one. One last question for you, Dilar, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question, <laughs> from we, hell. <laughs> the question we hate to ask, you hate to answer, our audience is going to hate the response. I think more so, the person who this is the most hellish for are people here in the United States, in capitalist United States, who do fear socialism so much. You write that, yet this is a region where many taboos have been broken. Forcibly destroyed practices of self-sufficiency have now been remembered and revived, and people don't just aspire to reinstitute the past, but rather to do better. To you, what explains why capitalism so often looks backward to the past for its future. We have President Trump who says we want to make uh, make America great again. And I think what he's talking about is the amount of profits, corporate profits that were happening in the 1990s. We have the new Green Deal that looks back at the new deal of World War or prior to World War II. Why does capitalism not simply try to do better than it ever has instead of always looking backward for solutions moving forward? Why does capitalism not have a magical future because capitalism is killing the future and capitalism is really not creative at all capitalism is often described as you know very innovative very future oriented futuristic but actually all the creativity um, of production comes from workers comes from creative people comes from artists comes from those who are silenced and marginalized Uh, capitalism has no imaginary it has no horizon because it's based on um, uh, it, it relies on funding, it relies on certain resources, it just wants to get by and in the meantime make some people rich. So capitalism lacks the ability to even imagine anything. I mean, it's not, I'm, not, I'm talking as if it's uh, one agent, there's not one capitalism that sits somewhere in an office and makes decisions, <laughs> but the whole, the whole structure, the whole infrastructure, the logic, the mentality that uh, capitalism uh, fosters, uh, it, it always needs to look, look back and create myths about how things used to be, how we can go back to that, how we can do even better than uh, what we did something in the past. So, but I mean, who's the future? It's it's young people who are suffering the most now uh, from capitalist policies. Uh, it's people who are able to think differently, people who are open-minded, people who say, actually, this is enough. We, we don't want this anymore. And I mean, America was never great again. It's, ba- it's a country that was uh, based on genocide against indigenous people. Uh, it's based on uh, the enslavement of, of, of uh, Africans. Of It's now based on the system of racism, of uh, incarceration and, and violence, right? So, I mean, Trump and his uh, video, uh, I mean, I sometimes watch him and he says, I don't know, maybe it's like this or not i don't know <laughs> but i mean his 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 words have massive consequences i mean because of a phone call with erdogan the turkish army was able to invade rojava and displace hundreds of thousands of people kill thousands of civilians i mean this is the future of capitalism this is what they have in mind they don't care about life and if a system like capitalism does not care about life then it cannot think about past, future, or present in any sense of the way. It has it's beyond time because it's just concerned with the moment. Moment. We're just concerned with making profit in that moment, which is why again. Uh, the future can only be built by people who actually have the imaginary, who have the willpower and have the desire, to, who have the love and passion and, and freedom in their hearts to believe that this is not how we need to be. We don't need to live like this. We don't need to destroy nature. We don't need to uh, resort to ecocide in order for economies to work. And this is is why I think you know learning from indigenous peoples, uh, learning from from uh, communities like uh, the radical black communities in the U.S., uh, feminists in different parts of the world, people in the global south, revolutionaries in different parts of the world, and and these alternative projects that do exist. I think we need to look there to also look at the future because I mean um, sometimes some of the practices of certain communities are quite ancient; they're very old, so it may not make sense to look at them if you want to look at the future. But actually, what is the future the whole concept of there is a linear progressive timeline and we're advancing towards somewhere that's also very eurocentric and capitalistic mindset how about we protect life how about we sustain ourselves in ways that are not based on ideas around progress and technology and innovation i mean there are people who plan on colonizing mars for rich people right i mean this is 
that kind of mindset, that kind of logic that we're up against in a place where there's so much poverty, so much injustice in the world. So this is why I think we need to also rethink what we mean by future, by time, and start organizing in the here and now so that we can even have a future so that our planet doesn't get destroyed. Best so ever. Listen, listen to Best. listen to women, listen to <laughs> feminists, listen to all of the people that are being targeted by the likes of Trump. That's that's all I want to say. <laughs> Best ever answer to a question from hell. Delar, I really oh. <laughs> I really appreciate you being back on the show. And right now Thank what you. I'm looking forward to most is having you back on the show. It is always a pleasure to hear your voice. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much for being back on and Thank we will you. talk to you very soon. Can I just say one last thing? Sure, sure. Um, I don't want to take up much more time. I mean, first of all, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoy the conversation. Um, I mean, there's a lot of very horrible stuff. There's war, displacement. There's, uh, I mean, people really should pay attention to many of the other conflicts as well in, in the region. The Saudi-led war in Yemen, for example, attacks happening in so many different places, uh, right? But also at the same time, there are people who do very amazing work. And I just want to point out uh, that especially uh, people, um, they, they, they don't need us to just say, uh, I stand with you, I am in solidarity with you, or protect this, protect that. We actually need to start organizing together. And just, just I just wanted to say that, uh, especially now uh, with what's happening in Rojava, we should not separate it from things that are also happening in Turkey or in other parts of Syria, in Iraq, in, in the region in general. So I just wanted to say that on a positive note, because I felt that the whole thing was a bit negative, but actually the chapter <laughs> and just generally people, there is hope. And that, I think that's one thing that people should never forget. There is hope and people uh, can do things together if they actually organize. So, yeah, thank you so much. And, for and, your work and, that, well. and that lives can flourish in places like Rojava and that we can read about how people are already uh, making a sustainable alternative. It's not that there is no alternative. TIA exactly. didn't span, stand for there is no alternative. I think what it stood for was there is now authoritarianism. I think that that's what Margaret Thatcher was really saying mm. with Tina. So one of the yeah. places people can start to so they can see how we can actually organize together is by checking out Cindy's great collection, which you are a contributor to. Dilar, thank, thank you, you so much for being back on our show. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. All right, you too. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about evil. So you do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, what household product are you injecting? What household product are you injecting or ingesting to fight coronavirus? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins 10. This is health advertising stickers so you too can convert outdoor advertising. You can leave your answer to this week's question on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to Alex or I, Alex at thisishell.com, Chuck at thisishell.com. Alex will have your answers uh, to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's and Thursday's show. On Thursday's show, we will be announcing the winner. Uh, Alex, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning, just like today's show? Uh, Ibram X. Kendi. Speaking of guests who are really excited to have back on the show, Ibram X. Kendi will be on to talk about his Atlantic piece, Stop Blaming Black People for Dying of the Coronavirus. New data from 29 states confirm the extent of the racial disparities. Tune in to tomorrow's show streaming live at 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast, which is posted by 2 p.m. Chicago time, to hear... Your answers to this week's question from hell, Ibram X. Kendi. Maybe I'll be reaching into the listener feed bag. I'm not too sure. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, podcast host, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry and Alex, before we go, Dillar is one of my very favorite guests on the show. She was absolutely fantastic. That first answer to the very first question was outstanding. And if Ed Sutton, Edward Sutton, uh, transcribed that for Antidote Zine, just that first answer to the first question, it could be an essay that people could be reading over and over again. So thanks to Alex Jerry for producing. Thanks to Dillard Derek for being our guest today. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.